Hey guys, this is Chris Roth here with Bushido Squirrel with your weekly knock activism wrap-up. Today we're going to be talking about a couple of corrections we have from uh, two weeks ago, as well as uh, our ongoing recurring segment, Cops You Guys, uh, talking about a little bit of what happened, uh, some recent events covering the Ryan Twyman case with the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. Uh, we're also going to talk about Section 8 anti-discrimination laws at the city and county level, uh, as well as some fun details surrounding wildfire funding. Uh, that was kind of a bad pun, and I apologize for it. And then we're also going to be talking about some interesting little things going on surrounding boring machines for the Purple Line. And then Bushido wants to talk a little bit about SB50 and what the mayor of Beverly Hills has to say about it. So how are you doing, Bushido? I'm doing all right. Uh, before we get into the corrections, which uh, were handily provided to us by uh, an incredibly interesting elected official that we have here, uh, <laughs> I did want to give a quick shout out to the public banking movement in California and uh, in LA because oh, AB, absolutely, yeah, AB eight five seven, which is the uh, state level bill that would allow cities and counties even to uh, capitalize and run their own public banks uh, in coordination with credit unions has made it through, well, it made it through the Assembly, uh, and now it's in the Senate, yeah. and it's made it through its first committee in the Senate, the Finance Committee. It has to go through two more committees before it actually comes up for a vote. Uh, so hopefully we see that go all the way, and we don't see any of these committees like stand in the way or any of the chairs decide they're put to decide to put their thumb on the scale and stop progress before it's made. But these are all really exciting and interesting developments that are happening in public banking. And California, with the amount of like just absolute wealth and liquidity that we have sloshing around the state, should be the home of public banking. Like here in New York are the places that really should experiment and play with this because we've got enough money to do it. I mean, if North Dakota can have a public bank and run that successfully for decades, yeah, right. there is no reason. No. That the state of California century, dude. Yeah. Oh, even better. Yeah. uh, (laughs) But like, there's no reason that the state of California can't do that. We have a forty billion dollar, you know, economy here. We have several trillion dollar companies that exist in our state. There's absolutely no reason we can't be capturing that value in like a good way. And you know, just. Just to give you guys some statistics, you know, the city of Los Angeles itself, just the city of L.A., sends $3 billion a year to Wall Street every year. Uh, I think about half of that is interest payments and half of that is like capital payments. The city of L.A.'s budget is only $9 billion. So no, I guess this year it's about $11 billion. But think about that. Almost 25% of our budget goes to Wall Street every year. And about 10% of that, a little bit north of 10%, is just paying interest. That is so ridiculously stupid. That's just giving money to Wall Street, which already has all the money and doesn't need any more money. So, you know, even if we pass public banking tomorrow, it would still take us, you know, a decade to unwind those loans. But at least we could stop taking on new loans. Like, that would be such a huge win for huge cities like LA and then for smaller cities to be able to partner with credit unions and other like community owned banks to be able to create new lines of credit for folks like, you know, even in fully automated gay space luxury communism, there still (laughs) has to be like a way to account for financing and how you pay for stuff. And this is how we build that infrastructure. So that's a really exciting one. So a big shout out to Public Bank LA 
all the work that they did to lay the groundwork for this through Charter Amendment B, through like really, really intensive direct lobbying and through the divestment mm -hmm. movement, and then to like public banking, the state level public banking movement for getting this into the assembly and like getting this through because this is really radical legislation. And especially for a state like California, where so many of our legislators are just owned by Wall Street outright. Uh, this is this could really be a huge earthquake in the way that the state runs. So I'm super excited about that. Uh, Absolutely, no. They've been doing they've been doing some really great work, and it's going to be very exciting to see that come back to the city of LA as well as I'm assuming the county at some point. Where yeah. we're basically going to have to do a repeat of last year's Measure B that did not quite make it over the line at the end there. Um, and we'll have to make a uh, some changes to the Los Angeles City Charter, um, or potentially make some changes at the county level in order to create an even bigger public bank uh, that would be managed through, uh, you know, legislative action through the Board of Supervisors, or most likely going to have to come to a vote in the county. Uh, we'll see what happens because it's going to be interesting to see who ends up picking up the baton here at City Hall once Herb Wesson terms out. Um, in the coming election year, so because it's even even if this even if this is going through this next uh, in the next few months at the from through the state senate uh, and does get signed into law, uh, it's still going to be you know that's all going to be happening while all of our electeds are really bracing themselves for the elections in 2020. And uh, Herb Wesson, who was the champion of the Measure B movement here in uh, in City Hall. Uh, he's terming out at, in his position in CD10, so he's actually running for the Board of Supervisors. So it's going to be interesting to see if he decides, uh, presuming that he, you know, if he wins at the county level, then would we move to have this legislation be something that gets picked up at the LA County, where it could be, you know, covering a much larger uh, total budget and would actually be directly applicable um, and have uh, rather would have direct access to all the funding that comes through the property taxes because it is the county that collects those. Uh, some very interesting uh, you know, potential futures coming up for the public banking movement uh, once AB 857 uh, makes it through the Senate and gets to uh, Gavin Newsom's desk and gets signed into law. Presuming that all of that will happen, which we have uh, fingers crossed that it does because that would be fantastic and a huge step forward for all of us. Yeah, it's not dying anytime soon. So I'm, I'm happy to see the continued momentum. But uh, let's move into Cheers these corrections real quickly because uh, we pay, play a little fast and loose with stuff because I just was yeah. too lazy to Google. So <laughs> let's go ahead and like let's go ahead and like cover these real quick just to just to For be sure. strictly adhering to the facts as we will Absolutely. always try to be in the future. Yes, 100%. So in discussing the City Council District 12 race uh, in recent episodes, we mistakenly identified that Scott Abrams had been working for Adam Schiff, uh, who represents Congressional District 27, which is, you know, Silver Lake, Echo Park, etc. Uh, actually, he worked for Brad Sherman, who is uh, the representative for Congressional District 30, which covers the west end of the valley. And honestly, that makes a lot more sense. So our apologies on that. Um, yeah, we, we, also, what we what we didn't what we missed the chance to mention last time since we didn't mention Sherman, which I'm going to mention this mm -hmm. time is Sherman runs the <laughs> most dysfunctional office on Capitol Hill has been voted the worst representative in Congress multiple times. So uh, the Sherman office has a lot of problems. Uh, Scott Abrams to his credit, has endorsed Dr. Lorraine Lundquist for CD12. Uh, she is winning 
all of the endorsements from her former yeah, competitors, uh, including uh, Carlos Amador and uh, Stella Maloyan, uh, both of whom ran really progressive campaigns and did like decently for running small campaigns. But like she mm-hmm. is just racking up endorsement after endorsement. So hopefully she is able to uh, f- uh, take the the you know runoff against John Lee, which is going to be happening August thirteenth. So uh, to put a plug in there real quick, if you live in CD twelve vote for her. If you don't live in CD12, come out and knock some doors for her. Absolutely. And uh, Ground Game is uh, continuing to do actions up there to knock on doors in support of her campaign, though not directly affiliated with it. Uh, And come hit us up for information about that and uh, join us for some canvassing. It's really quite fun and uh, really very, uh, very satisfying work to do, I must say. Uh, moving on, we mistakenly identified Mitch O'Farrell uh, in his previous role under uh, our current mayor, Eric Garcetti. He was actually the district director for Garcetti when Garcetti was a city councilman representing CD13, not the chief of staff position, which is what we had actually identified him as. Um, True. Sorry about that. And then uh, also when we were talking about the homeless count figures, we Uh, mistakenly identified City Council District 11 uh, alongside the uh, San Gabriel Valley as having some of the largest increases in the homeless population uh, for the year-on-year difference in the point-in-time counts. Uh, In reality, CD11 had a 12% increase year-on-year, which is exactly in line with the overall trends in the city. Uh, And actually, eight of the 15 districts had higher increases in their point-in-time numbers, including... 45%, 46%, 45%, 46%, and a stunning 53% in Council, council Districts 15, Buscaino 3, Blumenfeld, and 4, Ryu, respectively. Uh, so our apologies uh, on that one. Uh, CD11 was not the worst by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah, I actually feel bad because some of those other numbers uh, would have gotten me yelling a lot more. I, I uh, feel yes. like I, I, I realize, I think <laughs> at some point I read... 53% for Rue. Yeah, no, I mean, that one's, ooh, and he borders CD13. Like, CD13 and CD4 are right next to each other. Like, it's literally, like, the borderline is right down the middle of a street. Like, if you are facing north. District 4 is also just, like, the weirdest shaped district in all of city council. Like, it is the, by far, the most gerrymandered district we have. And it's also one of the most quickly gentrifying. It's like the yes. the you know struggles we're seeing in CD thirteen are exactly replicated in CD four, um, and the home price like the the difference in home prices now versus what they were fifteen or twenty years ago is even more stark there. But it's it's you know between CD thirteen and CD four, it's like if you're standing in the middle of this street that divides the two of them, every apartment on your right hand side is CD four, and all the apartments on the left hand side are CD thirteen, uh, which raises some real questions about like how sensible it is to draw a district that way. Like, I know the borders have to be somewhere, (laughs) but it's like literally down the center yellow stripe of the street. So that's just my own gerrymandering complaint. That's just kind of how it's always going to end up being. But uh, that being said, it is well past time that we have an independent redistricting uh, commission along the lines of what we have for the state of California, which, by the way, if you're interested in uh, playing a part in the redistricting of California, uh, the California Districting Redistricting Commission is taking applications right now and will be continuing to do so for a couple of months here. Uh, so if you really want to get down to the nitty gritty about determining 
how our elected representatives are chosen based upon the districts that they will represent, um, go check that out. And it's, uh, I believe it's the California Redistricting Commission or Project. Uh, get on the Googles and you will figure it out, I'm sure, because all of our listeners are lovely, intelligent people. And they are more than happy to correct us when they find things that are wrong. So again, if you hear us using figures that do not sound right to you, please, please reach out to us and let us know. Our podcast email is super easy to remember. It's just podcast at groundgamela.org. Again, that's podcast at groundgamela.org. Uh, hit us up whenever we uh, whenever we make a mistake, please. Yeah, before we move on real quick, I'm going to uh, add probably one of the only national level stories that we'll cover in depth when the Supreme Court decision actually By comes down is going to be over the citizenship question on the 2020 census. Uh, because as we found out oh, yeah. from leaks off of this like terrible ghoul's computer after he died, his daughter went like <laughs> went through his documents. It was like, holy shit, my dad was super racist. <laughs> my dad and, was like, a monster trying to disenfranchise everyone who's not white because that's literally what the citizenship question is there to do. And it's specifically an attack on states like California and New York that have a lot of immigrant populations and also have a lot of people who are undocumented. And, you know, no matter what your feeling is, well, it it does matter what your feeling is, but just from a basic administrative perspective, you want to have a full count of who everyone is in a city, in a state, in the country, so you can have the right number of, like, firemen and school seats and hospital beds like that's how we make those decisions is with the census that comes out every 10 years so the 2020 census is going to be a huge issue especially moving forward you know Karl Rove and his permanent Republican majority they know how important the census is they know how important it is to have a correct accounting and administration of populations just to be able to make those basic decisions about quality of life and how we run civic society so uh, we'll be covering that in depth and also So if you want to get involved, the census is also looking for volunteers so that we can get an accurate count. And unfortunately, the feds aren't going to provide enough funding for us to have paid people to do the the count entirely. So a lot of it's going to follow on volunteers. So after we get done with the election, you can then go knock on more doors to make sure that we count everyone in the state of California so that we're not losing huge blocks of federal (laughs) funding or even a congressional seat. Like that's the other thing is, oh, yeah, California, if undercounted, both us and Texas could lose one or you think even two congressional seats depending on how the counting goes and we're already underrepresented at the senate level like keep in mind we have 40 million people we have two senators who represent 20 million people apiece that's literally the population of like 10 other states each each of those those 10 states they each have two senators (sighs) that's 20 senators we have two for 40 million people the basic math there is just just like the Senate was always horrible and was always meant to be a backstop to democracy and like stop the unwashed masses from having too much control. Go ahead this and is read just a way of making sure that folks. that happens. Yeah. So uh, with that in mind, <laughs> yeah, I mean, some of them are kind of cool. Some of them it's, are just like really sad, like Federalist Paper yeah. 13. That's like, don't let there it, be parties because like political yeah. parties are really going to fuck your shit up. And guess what? And they were, they were right. right. <laughs> Uh, yeah. yeah. So by uh, by by uh, all means, you should definitely look into it because the uh, despite what uh, lovely pop culture phenomenons like the uh, the Hamilton musical would lead you to believe, our founding fathers were not exactly all fans of democracy in the sense that we currently understand it to be. Uh, when they thought of democracy, they thought of how to Exceptions protect apply. the rights. 
of uh, landed gentry, basically. So yeah, oh god, it's yeah, just so- always been this way, folks. It's always been this way, but we can do better. Yeah, and we we have we are making progress. Um, it, as we as we move on to the next segment, a uh, promise I'm going to make to y'all is that I am going to get Ace into the studio to record a bumper for this because we're going to need it. Uh, but let's go ahead and follow up <laughs> on uh, uh, some of the stories we've been following with LAPD, like killing a bunch of people because that's yeah. happened a bunch. Uh, video came out this week of the shooting of Ryan Twyman and the driver of his car. If you haven't seen it it's pretty bad and there's a lot of shooting and there's an assault rifle involved uh and it's if you want to track it down and watch it it's not like gory but it's very uh it's it's upsetting to watch like it's not easy footage to watch um and you you clearly see which officer killed ryan twyman um which is very weird um, because they were firing into a car, which they're not supposed to be doing. Uh, but let's go ahead and, and uh, kind of cover some of the details that have come out on this case over the last week. Yeah, so Ryan Twyman was the driver in that situation, and the video of the shooting was released by the Sheriff's Department on Thursday. It clearly shows all 34 shots that were fired by deputies into the car. Again, 34 shots into a moving vehicle. Uh, A quick reminder on the details that we discussed last week. This shooting took place on the June 6th in Willowbrook at around 7.30 p.m. Uh, Reporting from today's edition of the L.A. Times, because we're recording this on Friday, the 21st of June, uh, explained how, per departmental policies, deputies should not fire at a moving vehicle or its occupants unless a person in the automobile is, and we're quoting the department's policies directly here, quote, imminently threatening a department member or another person present with deadly force by means other than the moving vehicle, end quote. The policy further clarifies that the vehicle itself, quote, shall not presumptively constitute a threat that justifies the use of deadly force, end quote. I don't think that those are particularly difficult things to understand, but we'll see what happens when the department tries to defend itself. Well, and this is uh, also one thing when we when we sued. talk about it, well this is one thing when we talk about police using their guns is they're they're always shooting to kill. Like police yes. don't shoot to wound, they don't shoot to stop vehicles, like they're never they shooting shoot to, to shoot at a tire because that's it's incredibly hard to shoot a tire home. out. And also like you can still drive on a flat tire. Like you can still do that. So none of those are effective ways to stop a car. Uh shooting at a car is generally not going to help the situation. It will generally hurt one of the passengers or cause ricochets that are going to hurt someone else. Like the police are told not to do this for a number of reasons. And what's weird in this case, when you see the video, is the car isn't even driving at officers. Like the car, in order for officers to be able to shoot at a car, the car is supposed to be trying to kill them. And this is a car that is backing away from the officers and trying to make like a reverse U-turn away from the cops. And they just open up and that goes against every bit of training and every bit of policy and every bit of common sense especially the deputy who is just unloading his gun into the open back seat like he opens the door of the back seat the car goes back the guy pulls out his gun and why that back seat door was opened like it doesn't well yeah no that's also against policy like you're supposed to announce yourself also you don't have a search warrant you're not allowed to open the door you're like everything that was done here was against policy 
and it cost a young man his life for no reason. There's also a part where one of the cops runs back to the squad car after he shoots his entire clip full of ammo and and grabs another gun. Like, they they wanted to kill these guys so much that they grabbed another gun to shoot them, Uh, which they didn't end up... Yeah, they. I don't think they ended up firing the the AR-15. When you look at it, there's no muzzle flashes from it. But the guy takes cover behind a, a pickup truck and looks like he's ready to to start shooting again. The car doesn't move, and then the video kind of cuts. But it's it's really like at the point that you've shot so many bullets, you need to grab another gun. There should be a part of your brain that's like, maybe I've done that enough. Like maybe the solution to this situation is not another gun. Yeah. Plus the the vehicle literally just did a u-turn backing up and just kind of bumped into the uh, it crashed into uh another structure or median or something in the parking lot and just kind of rolled and it did so it was it was clearly the the driver had clearly stopped trying to drive away and escape um and the reaction seems pretty understandable given that there was a um, an extremely high level of confrontation going on Uh, in this. But anyway, getting back on to what had happened here on Thursday, there was a press conference that was held uh, where Brian Dunn, an attorney for Twyman's family, uh, which is suing the county and the sheriff's department um, over this use of force violation, uh, argued that the deputies were in clear violation of department policy and disregarded their training entirely. Quote, your job is to apprehend, he said. If there's punishment, it should come from a judge and jury, end quote. Uh, Twyman's father also told reporters that he's running out of answers to give his son's three children about what happened that night. He said his wife goes to bed and wakes up crying. Yeah. That's just heartbreaking. Like, there's no reason for someone that young and with three kids to be dead at this point. Especially it's, when it's, it's still not even clear what got the cops there in the first place. Like, they still haven't explained what call brought them there or why no. they were interested in talking to the occupants of that vehicle um, or why they rolled up like they're freaking Rambo. Like, none they, of that has been explained at this point. They mentioned that they had been wanting to arrest him on uh, gun-related charges, uh, apparently in violation of his probation. Uh, the LA Times has been doing some pretty good reporting on all of this, but they did go into... A lot of detail to, you know, paint him as one of those not an angel type situations that we see so commonly whenever the police are involved in any shootings uh, in in situations like this where it's the 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 past history of any of these folks really shouldn't determine what it is that happens to them whenever they interact with law enforcement moving forward. The fact that this guy had been uh, reportedly you know, in violation of his probation did not by any means justify the fact that the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department deputies walked up to his car with their basically ready to pull the trigger at a moment's notice and just unloaded 34 rounds into the moving vehicle at him, killing him. It's also one where, like, we know the L.A. Sheriff's Department has literal gangs in it who have their own gang tattoos, and yet we never see that reported in this stuff. Like, we never see the, like, the officer was no angel counter-narrative, and I kind of understand why. If you're working the police beat, you you don't want to, like, make enemies of the cops, Um, but maybe that points to the intrinsic weakness of this kind of local news coverage. 
Yeah. Um, and so giving a little bit more context here, as you've probably guessed, this is uh, not the first time in recent memory that a sheriff's deputy has fired their service weapon into a moving vehicle at an unarmed occupant. Uh, deputy, deputy Luke Liu uh, shot an unarmed man in a vehicle in a gas station parking lot back in 2016. And last year, Lou became the first law enforcement officer in Los Angeles County to stand trial in an on-duty shooting in nearly two decades. Well, he was charged. Yeah, he was charged, yes. but he, he's he's still waiting to go to trial. They they finally cleared uh, him for trial because they tried an end run to be like, no, you can't charge him for this. And the judge called BS on that yeah. and set an actual trial date. So he, he, he will be going to trial. Which is good because this is the first time in nearly two decades, which very much predates the tenure of our current district attorney, Jackie Lacey, uh, by quite a bit. Uh, so as a, you know, a little bit more context for folks, when we're out there protesting uh, how Jackie Lacey is handling these kinds of investigations and how she is repeatedly refusing to bring charges against LAPD officers and LA County Sheriff's deputies. What we're really protesting against here is the perpetuation of an incredibly unjust system and all of the systemic inequities inherent in it. Uh, it is not just DA Jackie Lacey that must go. It is the entire corrupt carceral justice system, purported justice system that has just completely and utterly failed so many communities within our county and our state and our country as a whole. Yeah, and we're not going to touch on it too much now, but the LA Times did have a good article about a possible contender to Jackie Lacey, a reformist from San Francisco who's a DA, who may be coming down to LA to run against her. And he's not like a Krasner-level transformer, but he is a reformer, and that would be a step in the right direction. It would at least probably see us get some traction. Um, Also, like one of the things about DAs, and especially like when we're going after Lacey, She's more of a figurehead, like she's an administrator. There. Oh, for sure. The the people who actually make the decisions are the actual district attorneys, the the prosecutors that work underneath her. And if she wants to take a case to trial, she's not the one doing that. She has to find one of her lawyers that's willing to do that. And these are lawyers who work hand in hand with the cops because that's who's their main witness. That's who's giving them information. That's who they're Correct. conducting these inf- investigations with. So there's a lot so of structural problems that have to, to be have overcome. A completely independent commission whose job it is to do these kind of investigations and determine yep. whether or not to be bringing these prosecutions and handling the prosecutions themselves. And it shouldn't be the DA's office. I mean, no. this, this also this also plays into like stepping back into national politics for a moment here. Uh, Kamala Harris and her role as top cop in San Francisco when she was the DA there and when she was the top cop in California as our attorney general. These are all positions. You're right. It is kind of a figurehead at some level, but they do have the final say in what it is that's going to be brought uh, potentially brought to trial and what is not. So uh, yeah, they can put the kibosh on pretty much anything. Uh, Kibosh. I I apologize if I cannot pronounce these things, Um, but yeah, it's it's a mess, and we absolutely need to have some massive reforms happening. Um, but it's going to be a challenge because remember, uh, Jackie Lacey actually ran on a quasi reformist platform when she was first elected. So uh, we got to be there and hold our electeds to account when they take office because those campaign promises are very easy to have fall by the wayside. 
if you really want to find a very glaring example of that, look no further than the uh, sheriff who were whose department we're criticizing right now. Uh, yeah, because, Villanueva oh is. Well, we get to vote against him soon. Um, that, that is true. That's the only upside to that one. <laughs> um, and then, you know, ne- next week we'll, we'll also, uh, we're still waiting for a lot of the details in the Costco investigation to come out, so we'll cover that. Um, but that story uh, now has dueling narratives in the press. I do want to give uh, some credit to the local news for giving a pretty fair hearing to the victim's family in this one because it is such a tragic case. And while the initial narrative was very pro cop and like buying the police officer's story like he's definitely getting his money's worth with his lawyer because the cop's lawyer got way out ahead of this narrative it was like here's what happened and got that into the press now there's being some pushback because like the people who knew the french family are like none of this makes any effing sense none of this adds up let's see what actually happened there uh but we'll we'll cover that in detail next time uh hopefully we won't have too many more stories of police killing or shooting people that we'll have to cover for the next time so we can focus and drill down on some of these cases but we'll keep you abreast of all that so after that incredibly incredibly depressing cops you guys segment uh let's move on to some good news uh that has to do with section eight so section eight are the vouchers that you get from the federal government administered by the state and the county in this sense uh that basically pays a part of your rent so it's basically a voucher that goes to the landlord and says hey this person can only pay 20 or 50 percent of the rent that you're actually offering the uh, housing and urban development, uh, uh, sorry, housing and urban development from the federal government will go ahead and pick up the tab for the rest. And this is supposed to be an easy way to get somebody into housing because the landlord knows it's a guaranteed paycheck. Problem here is that a lot of landlords see Section 8 tenants as poor and dirty and people that they don't want in their building. So even though it's guaranteed money, they refuse to accept Section 8 vouchers. But that's beginning to change. So let's go over some of those details. Exactly. So on Tuesday, June 18th, both the Los Angeles City Council and the County Board of Supervisors voted to adopt new rules surrounding how landlords must treat Section 8 vouchers. And again, Section 8 is the uh, the common name for the Housing Choice Voucher Program, which, as Bushido just mentioned, is funded by the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, which is uh, commonly referred to as HUD. Uh, our apologize for the f- we apologize for the fact that there are so many acronyms whenever it comes to housing and uh, all of these aspects of terminology that really seep into seemingly every conversation on these issues, we understand that it can be confusing and we're going to do our best to keep it from doing that. Um, Look, Chris, it's not brain surgery. (laughs) Yeah, but it is complicated. Um, So back on the update from LA City Council, uh, as well as the county, it is now illegal for landlords to discriminate against tenants based on the fact that they're going to be recipients of Section 8 vouchers. This is critically important. Nearly half of the folks in this city who receive these vouchers have them expire before they can find a landlord that's willing to accept the voucher, uh, which is just patently absurd. Um, oh, it, and gets given even, the, it gets even worse because there are wait lists that are a decade long to just get the voucher. Like oh yeah. the, the list to get on the section or to get on the, the section eight uh, like waiting list was closed for a decade. They yes. opened it up for like a month, six weeks, and literally and a million like people applied. Yeah. Before it's, it's those absolutely. million people, 
Well, before those million people applied, there were 800,000 people on the waiting list in LA. Like, there were so many heartbreaking stories of people who were living in shacks or crashing on couches because they got on the Section 8 waiting list. They're waiting for their voucher. It never came through. And they're like, well, I still can't afford a place to live, but I need to live somewhere. And this is one way we can A, get people off the street, B, get families into housing, and C, like, put our tax dollars to use in a good way that isn't like a hundred million dollar drone that Iran's going to shoot down. Yes. And uh, now given that this was really that these um, accepting these vouchers was definitely not an issue back before the rental market in Los Angeles became so scorching hot. It seems likely that this practice is largely the result of our current housing affordability crisis. And the practice only really this practice of uh, denying Section 8 vouchers only really serves to further exacerbate the situation by making it harder for folks who are the most precariously positioned to get back into stable housing. According to the Housing Authority of the City of Los Angeles, which you'll often hear referred to by its acronym HACLA, uh, just 45% of the homeless veterans who are those that they, they're among the folks who receive the most support while being homeless because uh, at least our federal government tries to be, you know, tries to do right by them kind of most of the time. Um, yeah, sort of. Yeah, hence the, uh, the, the, you know, trepidation and actually saying that and getting behind it. Um, yeah. Yeah. So 45% of the homeless veterans who receive federal housing vouchers are actually able to find an apartment within the city that's going to accept those vouchers, which is just depressing. Um, Peggy Bailey, who was contacted by LAist to discuss this issue, pointed out that while the rental market in DC where she works, um, the, their rental market is also going through its own affordability crisis. Um, they have these uh, similar anti-discrimination laws that have been in place now for a little bit. And as a result, very few landlords are actually declining Section 8 vouchers, which makes it much easier for folks who are currently unhoused uh, to get into housing. Um, just to keep all of this in mind, there's still going to be a ton of work needed to bring the Section 8 program up to snuff here in Los Angeles, including streamlining the inspection process to ensure that landlords are going to get their payments in a timely manner, uh, which will help to make the process easier for tenants, uh, and also figure out how to properly enforce these new anti-discrimination laws when landlords inevitably uh, run afoul of them. Uh, and for a little bit more context, California State Senator Holly Mitchell, my senator, uh, also introduced legislation this year that would make discrimination against Section 8 vouchers a law across the entire state. But that bill is still working its way through the assembly before it can make it over to Gavin Newsom's desk and then eventually be signed into law. And fingers crossed that is exactly what will happen. Um, but honestly, it's really quite refreshing to see that the city and the county of Los Angeles are actually leading the way on this issue. Uh, well done. County Board of Supervisors and well done City Council. Thank you. No, it, there's a really good argument to be made that the LA County Board of Supervisors is the most progressive governmental body oh, we've got in the sure. state right now, which is kind of surprising and also unfortunate because rent they're freezes, really government control. It's great. Well, but they're also but. government at a distance. You know, like there's only five people also that true. control 12 million people and unincorporated LA is like a little over a million people. I, I think maybe close to 2 million at this point, yeah, but it, it's a huge, 
Well, the only government they really have is the L.A. County Sheriff's deputies who are out there, oh, like, fuck. enforcing their version of the law because oh. there's there's not as many county services. And it's weird, too, because you'll Back have... Back to the cops, you guys, segment. <laughs> yeah, but there's there's parts of the city that are... Or parts of the county, rather, that are, are nestled in the city. And so we're, like, bounded by different city council also districts true. who have no power over them. So, like, along CD11, there's, I think, not parts of Inglewood, but it kind of borders Inglewood, and it also borders parts of, of like, Marina Del Rey and stuff. But it's it's an unincorporated kind of like finger that sticks out there that there's really no government in, and it's it's very weird because they're cut off and they're isolated and they don't have direct city services. The other thing I was going to talk about was back during the the government shutdown scare that we had, or well, it actually the the government did shut down, but during that, if that had gone on for about another two weeks to a month, the money for Section 8 was going to run out. And we were literally oh, looking yeah. at millions of people across this country getting evicted because a lot of landlords in hot housing markets were just licking their chops, knowing that as soon as that rent check didn't come in, they were just going to evict all of their Section 8 tenants, even though they get the money later. Like the federal government would have to pay those bills later, but these landlords wanted an excuse to kick them out and kick that that housing back up to, to market rate. And this is one of the things that I like to come back to is that we have to reframe the narrative of how we think about housing because right now, and, and Section 8's designed in this mode of housing, we think of housing as a way for a landlord to get a paycheck, not as a way to provide shelter. Like the whole sheltering humans is the second uh, drive of our housing market. The first yeah. drive is to make sure that the landlord who's earning passive income gets paid. And we have to switch that because as long as housing is this kind of a commodity, as long as it's an investment vehicle, people are always going to come second. And as we see in LA County with 60,000 people living on our streets, 16,000 people living out of their cars, and actually the, the real numbers for that probably being much, much higher than are actually being reported because it's hard to get a really accurate count. We're we're simply going to see those problems and those numbers get higher, and we we need to change that. Especially, you know, keep in mind that that like LA keeps seeing more people moving in year after year, but we also have an aging population in this country. Like the boomers are going to start dying. We're going to have overbuilt in a lot of ways when you look a generation or two out, and those housing markets they're going to cool down eventually. They're going to contract like bubbles pop. So when we have these assets that have overvalued themselves and then come crashing down, that just leads to these cycles where we end up with empty housing stock, where it's just cheaper to, to leave it empty and blighted and degrading than to just put humans in there who need shelter. And I know like out in Phoenix where I'm at now, during the last crash, we had all these subdivisions that were built and never finished and just had hundreds of houses sitting way out there in sort of the exurbs that they didn't have enough police to patrol. And they became drug stash houses and they became human trafficking houses for people who were for coyotes bringing people over the border. And it, it becomes an actual problem. And it's something where allowing the developers and the landlords to set the tempo for how and what we build rather than cities and civic mindedness is just going to cause us problems. It's just going to lead to this boom and bust cycle because that's ultimately yeah. what fuels capitalism is that that drive for short-term profit. And until we remove that from something as essential as housing, we're continually going to see people suffering needlessly when we have more empty houses in this country than we have people without homes. Like exactly. we could solve homelessness immediately if we just gave people housing. And we don't even have to build that new housing. We can just give exists. them the houses that are already there. But yeah, you know, so level this, 
would rather have like hundreds of 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 empty units to rent for you know twenty five hundred dollars a month yeah. than like have a roof over someone's head. So slash and this rant is part on that of one. this is part of where that vacancy tax that we were discussing last week really comes into play. Uh, was it last week or two weeks ago? Regardless, yeah, it was last week. Yes, time time is becoming a massive confusion in my head because of all of the stuff that's been going on lately. But yeah, when we were discussing the vacancy tax, it really uh, that that piece of le- that kind of legislation can really have an immediate and direct impact on what landlords are doing and what banks are doing with these properties when uh, that boom and bust cycle really just leaves things unused or underused. Uh, in the market. And hopefully we'll be seeing some good progress coming out of that. Um, again, with both uh, commercial property as well as residential property, uh, we have uh, high hopes for that anyway. And uh, if it does come to pass that this goes through and we uh, decide to enact it, that can really make a massive difference in, the, in what happens here with the housing market in Los Angeles. Um, and then we can also look at examples of cities like Berlin, where there is some absolutely uh, massively progressive housing policies being enacted, uh, where they've got, what, a rent freeze for the next three years. And, yeah, uh, and they're also well looking to expropriate some housing. Property. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think it's, it's one of those situations of like the only people who need to worry about having their assets seized when this kind of a situation comes to pass are the massive and I mean truly massive landlords. I think it was like you had to have 3,000 units in stock um, yeah. before the city would, would seize your assets. There is a massive amount of popularity behind that issue, and it makes sense because these massive landlords, I keep saying massive, I apologize. These huge landlords are, are really just playing this big stock market gambling situation with the housing stock in these cities like Los Angeles, like San Francisco, like Berlin. And they really are just putting our basic ability to survive and be sheltered uh, on the gambling table because they can make a ton of money off of it. And so if you're a huge landlord and you've got all of these homes that you're just gambling with in terms of investment, uh, watch out. Yeah. Well, if it makes you feel any better, just remember time is an illusion. Lunchtime doubly so, but time is also a flat circle. (laughs) It is 100% a flat circle. Oh my God. One, One of the things that we keep confronting year over year here in California is we have huge wildfires and these uh, wild uh, these wildland urban interface wildfires are becoming a much bigger problem and destroying much more property year over year. Hooray, and yet we sprawl. keep rebuilding. And generally, the people who are benefiting from that rebuilding are wealthier people who own gigantic houses far removed from our cities, where they can afford to buy a lot of property and build a gigantic house. And the state of California sort of has some plans in the works to try and cut back against that because the private insurance companies don't want to keep footing the bill. The federal government is definitely not wanting to foot the bill. Uh, Remember, President Trump's suggestion to the state of California was that we need to sweep our forests more. Um, (laughs) That's probably not going to work. So (laughs) Gavin Newsom has another plan that he's floating. So let's go ahead and talk about some wildfire funds for the state of California. All right. So now that we know that the Pacific Gas and Electric Company uh, was, in fact, responsible for starting the campfire, as we all suspected, uh, which, bear in mind, it killed 85 folks last year. 
uh, most of whom were elderly and or disabled because they could not get out of their homes because the fires are now burning so hot and so fast that it is just a firestorm and it is devastating. Um, the question of who it is that's going to have to come up with the funds to pay for the damages and other liabilities is currently being raised in Sacramento and actually has been for a few months at this point. Um, how Governor Gavin Newsom uh, chooses to lead the legislature on this issue could really well just end up defining the first few years of his tenure in, in this office because this is a huge, huge issue. Um, yeah, we're talking billions of dollars a year that yeah, oh, in property yeah. damage. I mean, that doesn't even count lives lost, but just the property damage year of a year gets bigger and bigger into the billions of dollars, plus the billions we're spending on firefighters and equipment and fire retardant and all the stuff Stop that goes into fighting the these fires. Urban wildlife or the urban wilderness interface, folks. Just, just, just stop. We've or got you know, too if you do want to. If you do want to build a gigantic McMansion out there, like don't expect the rest of us to bail you out. Like that's the uh, other absolutely. option. Uh, I, how about both? Um, so Assemblyman Chad Myers from Yucca Valley, who happens to be a Republican, and it's kind of fun because everybody is thinking the same stuff, told the Los Angeles Times that, quote, at this point, we're just waiting to see what the executive's office comes up with and how we're going to move forward, end quote. So the legislature really is waiting to see what Newsom is proposing here because it's he's been signaling that he's going to take the lead on this, but he hasn't really come forward and done all this. He was he was committed to uh, delivering a plan back in April, but that ended up uh, kind of fizzling and just turning into some guidelines for the legislature, um, and that was a huge disappointment. So step it up, Gavin. Come on. Uh, on the subject um, of cans and kickings and roads. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So uh, speaking, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, it. Oh, again, flat circle. So Newsom inherited quite a mess of a situation uh, that's really been building for decades here. So this, this really all comes back to the massive market deregulation that was part of the 2001 Enron scandal, which helped ensure that we ended up where we are today. Uh, and on top of that, climate change, which is rapidly uh, increasing in its pace and furiosity, uh, we're 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 looking or ferocity, not furiosity. I apologize. I am really just stumbling with the words today. Uh, the ferocity of climate change is insane right now. We're looking at like the Arctic permafrost is melting at rates seventy years ahead of schedule. And that is a massive feedback loop that we are just utterly unprepared to deal with. That 11 years left time frame that Sunrise keeps harping about, that is a very conservative estimate, folks. We do not even have those full 11 years to deal with this. We have to deal with it now, like right now. To throw on a little tangent or to, to take us on a little tangent, I do have to give a shout out. Uh, sh- a shout out. I do <laughs> have to give a shout out to my favorite naval vessel ever. I guess it's not really a naval vessel, but uh, Bodie McBoatface, which isn't actually the boat. <laughs> they they called the boat the Sir Richard At- uh, Atkins yeah. or uh, Atkinson. Uh, no, it's, it's the David Attenborough, isn't it? The David Attenborough. There you go. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, they, they named it the David Attenborough. The, uh, uh, I, I was it thinking was Rowan like the Atkinson. unmanned but something anyways, or other. Yeah, I know. Yeah, their unmanned submersible that comes with it got the name Bodie McBoatface. It went on its first scientific mission in the Arctic, um, or sorry, the subarctic, 
at subarctic and it dove down and it found that what was happening was as temperatures increased on the surface, it's increasing the Arctic winds, which is causing more warm water to get pulled down below the surface, warming up the cool water beneath Hooray. and accelerating sea level rise. So Bodie McBoatface's first time out proves to be heroic in that we're all going to drown a lot sooner. But I just want to, you know, if we're talking climate acceleration, oh like <laughs> every bit of data is pointing towards that. So now let's get back onto the topic because this, this climate acceleration has real financial impacts because again, like capitalism and money. So some of our utilities seem to be facing kind of some dire consequences here in terms of like oh, their ability sure. to fund their operations. Yeah. So S&P Global Ratings is reportedly going to be downgrading the credit ratings for Southern California Edison, as well as San Diego Gas and Electric's rating, uh, their, their credit ratings. Uh, if the legislature fails to meet the July 12th deadline that I don't understand why, but Gavin Newsom gave for this kind of a bill. Um, well, at the, at the speed that our legislature runs and having, you know, three, well, having three weeks, I really believe they can do it. You know, like oh. look at how quickly they get everything else done. No, <laughs> no, we're gonna, we're all gonna die in a giant wildfire. So yeah, such a downgrade in the ratings for these stocks and in these companies is going to probably end up making it extremely extremely difficult for them to raise the money that's necessary to continue to operate, putting them all at a risk of bankruptcy, just like PG&E. Hooray. Um, and then we get to bail them out. Again and again and again. This is the future we all get to look forward to, unless, of course, we municipalize everything, and that's what we should do. Uh, right now, there are currently two main models that are being considered for how a liability fund of some sort could be structured, both of which aim to create what amounts to a massive, massive pot of money that is large enough to protect ratepayers from additional increases that stem from wildfire liability lawsuits. The model that is apparently being favored by the governor is a quote-unquote liquidity fund that would be at least $10 billion in scope and would come primarily from the continuation of a state Department of Water Resources charge that we've been paying since the last energy crisis. And uh, what it really amounts to is that we've all been paying a few dollars a month uh, on top of our regular electricity bills to cover this charge. And it was supposed to be sunsetting in 2020, but if we need to be raising $10 billion to cover this liquidity fund, uh, those fees would continue for quite some time. The utilities would then be able to borrow from this fund to pay out liabilities to wildfire victims, but the utilities would also be expected to repay the monies borrowed back into the fund once the California Public Utilities Commission determines who it is that needs to cover the cost of the damages caused by such wildfires. And I apologize if that's confusing and boring, but let's continue because <laughs> it gets to be even more fun. A second so-called quote unquote wildfire victims fund uh, would require as much as $40 billion that would serve as a backup insurance policy for utilities over the coming decade. According to the wildlife, com wild, sorry, wildlife, wildfire commission, utilities, ratepayers, property owners, and taxpayers could all be required to pay into the fund. This solution has been criticized by many analysts who fear that it would be difficult for the utilities to actually be able to pay into such a fund because their credit ratings are trash. 
this brings two things to mind. One is hypernormalization with Adam Curtis, where he said the big problem it, we have folks. to confront oh my God. is, oh, it's so good. But yes. the big problem we have to confront uh, is that the machinery that actually runs our society is so boring that no one pays attention to it. And I know that Adam <laughs> Curtis believes Thanks that because I saw him I'm talking about this. Yeah, well, I saw him at the uh, at the the silent cinema when that was still open, and uh, he he gave a screening of hypernormalization, and somebody was like, "What's the biggest problem we have?" And he's like, "Well, you know, the machinery of power is so boring and opaque that nobody cares about it because it's easy to miss." The other thing I want to note is that forty billion dollars is our state's entire budget in a year. That's what we as a state of 40 million people have to play around with in a year, and we're just talking about that as an insurance fund, like the costs of trying to run this ridiculous exurb and like McMansion-based society is going to quickly outstrip whatever financial resources we have, uh, even on a fiat-based currency. Like we're spending so much money to make up for really stupid planning and there's no reason to do that. Yeah. So here's a little bit of context on why these funds uh, are probably going to end up being necessary. It all really comes down to a 2017 California Public Utilities Commission ruling that found that San Diego Gas and Electric had, quote, failed to prudently manage and operate, end quote, their equipment, and that such failings had led directly to a trio trio of wildfires that caused $379 million in costs for the company. Ever since then, increasingly uh, costly wildfires have been a huge headache for our state utilities and their investors. Our utilities lobbied legislators to pass a bill that would allow them to push some of those liabilities onto us, the ratepayers, and that's exactly what happened last year. But, of course, some of the folks over on Wall Street argued vehemently that the bill didn't go nearly far enough. Um, less than a month after the law went into effect, they were probably proven right because PG&E filed for bankruptcy in the face of some $30 billion in potential debts due to the huge number of wildfires that they've caused in recent years, again, including the campfire, which killed 85 people. This yeah, is- between, between 2014 and 2017, they're known to have caused 1,500 fires. It's One utility... St- Fifteen hundred fires in three years. They, we, stop letting it be a public-private partnership. Stop, just stop. It needs to be municipalized. It needs to be publicly controlled. It is absurd that we have allowed the private uh, capital interests to run how a public good like energy transmission across the state is being run. It is just so fundamentally at odds with what we need to be having happen. (sighs) Anyway, in in related news, uh, a recent poll that came out of the UC Berkeley Institute for Governmental Studies, which is a fun name to say, uh, which was also this this poll was prepared for the LA Times, found widespread bipartisan support for restricting home building in areas that are at high risks of wildfires, which is fantastic. A full 75% of respondents uh, were found to favor such restrictions, which is amazing. Um, 57% of Republicans who were surveyed favored these kinds of restrictions, uh, as did uh, an unsurprising 85% of Democrats and a full 72% of unaffiliated voters. Um, 
and uh, yeah, so wildfires really are just going to be getting worse and worse in coming years. And it is really fundamentally and absolutely critical that elected officials are going to be taking steps to ensure that we're not putting folks in harm's way by allowing them to continue to build sprawling new housing tracts in the urban wilderness interface zones. It just needs to end. Yeah, and it's, I, I know it's part of the whole like mystique and beauty of California that you can have like a massive house out in the wilderland, like out in the wilderness and out in the hinterlands, like and you can still expect That's a fun way to yeah. mash up those words. It works, <laughs> but you can you can still expect like fire and rescue to respond to you when you need it. You can still expect there to be you know some level of civic engagement and civic help at your fingertips. And we we've kind of as we've boxed ourselves in with climate change, we really do have to rethink about the way that we build cities. And you know to to give a, a shout out to the California courts, which I don't want to do too much. They <laughs> <laughs> they did stop the edge from building his ridiculous like five houses up oh, in the yeah. Santa Monica mountains. But we Good need job, to see Clint. more of that happening. We need to see more control over what's our inherited legacy because this state, this land, like we're just stewards. You don't actually own anything. You will pass from this earth and that land will continue to be there. And allowing people that have enough money to just plop down whatever they want, wherever they want, is a terrible way to design the society. So... With that going forward, just keep in mind that, you know, you're going to be paying out of pocket like a significant sum of money over the next several years to make up for this because we're not reversing this trend anytime soon. And there's a lot of wilderness in California and we're going to be seeing a lot of wildfires like this year. Fortunately, we haven't seen any massive ones erupt yet during our like break between fire yet. seasons because that's all we get now. It used to be, you know, six yeah. months of the year and now it's 11 months of the year. Uh, but on the subject Ugh. of development in the right way, uh, the purple line <laughs> is going to get built after, you know, decades of being like, we're going to yeah. build this thing and it's we're going to build a subway to the sea. And then they're like, okay, we're going to build a light rail to the sea. Yeah. And then we're going to build a subway <laughs> to the veterans administration in Westwood because we didn't plan out our light rail and subways well enough. So we have different kinds of track that can't actually interface with each other. Yeah. Uh, but and uh, also this like is Zed something Varislavsky or uh, I forget how to say his name. Yeah. He, yeah. yeah. He definitely threw us so many wrenches into these plans, but yeah, it's. I mean, we're also seeing this fight with the bus rapid transit lines, but at least in a little bit of sort of fun news, they they named the boring machines. They did, uh, and they didn't give them boring names. Uh, oh. That was so much worse of a pun than anything I've ever done on this podcast. Hey, your boss named his company the Boring Company. <laughs> Former I boss, can't top that no much. matter how many goth girlfriends I have. Uh, let's just keep on railing on uh, on Elon here because he does railing he deserves it. Uh, <laughs> uh, okay, now I'm back into pun territory. All right, so L.A. Metro unveiled two new boring machines which are not boring, and we're going to keep doing the puns because this is the only fun segment we get. Uh, on Monday, they're going to be used for the Purple Line Extension Project as it moves into Century City. Apparently, there was a contest that somehow we missed because this is fantastic uh, that determined what the names of these machines were going to be. The winning submission came from Ruby Santa Maria, an area sixth grader within the, I believe, in the Los Angeles Unified School District. Uh, and she basically wrote an essay and came up with the names uh, Harriet and Ruth uh, for Harriet Tubman and Ruth Bader Ginsburg, of course. Uh, let's go ahead and just 
pull the audio clip from KTLA about why it is that Ruby says that she picked these names. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, she's just so empowering and inspiring, and I thought it would be a really good choice. And I sort of used a play on words for Harriet because although she hers wasn't an actual Underground Railroad, it still delivered people to a destination just like the Metro does. All right. All right and then that's for pretty those, cute. Yeah, it, it absolutely is. Okay. And for uh, apparently this is a thing uh, from having listened to LA podcast, there are Metro tap card collectors who exist. Uh, looking at you, Scott Frazier. Uh, I think actually Hayes does this too, which is, that's kind of fun. Uh, there is artwork from a third grader from Beverly Hills whose name is Hans Smallwood uh, that's going to be gracing these new tap cards that exist for a limited time. Uh, but we're not really sure where you're going to get them. My guess is probably going to be Union Station. But he basically drew what his interpretation of Beverly Hills is. And uh, they hung it up on these giant banners on the boring machines uh, before they were put down into the tunnels with their newly christened names of Harriet and Ruth. And uh, it's just a, there's a fun segment. If you want to go check it out, I, check out I, what's on KTLA five. And it's very cute. I, I also feel like that's kind of an F you to Beverly Hills, who has tried <laughs> so hard to stop this line from being built. Like their really PTA have. has spent six figures, six figures to try oh, yeah. and stop these rail lines from they being built on, with like they called on the Trump sensible to stop. Send all of the funds that were going to be coming in federally and, to help. And he tried projects. to, it, like he literally tried to, and then like the federal department was like, no, we can't actually do that legally. Like they they yeah. still get to keep the money. Um, but even beyond that, like you know, they I, I remember the Beverly Hills uh, PTA spent like ninety thousand dollars to go get their own consultant because Metro was like, yeah, we did all of the seismic studies and all of the like topographical studies and putting the line here so it crosses the fault line perpendicularly and that puts a stop here at the uh, right next to uh, LA Country Club and that's the place to do it. It's the most ah. convenient. It's the easiest for bus lanes and the Beverly Hills uh, High School PTA <laughs> was like, no, 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 no. We're going to get our own consultant and they're going to prove you wrong and so they went out and they got that and the guys came back and they're like, yeah, no, Metro was right. Here's your $90,000 invoice. Please pay us. And then they like, they threatened to go get another consultant to do it. And I think every consultant was like, no, we're not going to do that. Like that would just be malfeasance to keep taking Good your job, money, no matter how dumb you are. Like at some point we, we can't just keep taking your money. And so then they went to the courts to try and sue their way through it. And eventually like the rest of the city and including Beverly Hills, like city council, I believe had to be like, yo, you have to stop doing this because you're going to get sued because that money's only supposed to be spent for students and saying, we have this weird fantasy that making a subway line is going to blow up our students isn't actually spending that money on students. It's so bad. Like, I know we played <laughs> clips from that video before. It's just so absolutely terribly bad. It's so ridiculous. Uh, I'm really looking forward just, to the angry emails we're going to get about this segment uh, in the I mean, future. <laughs> yeah, it's it's so absolutely terrible. But I, I, I do, I, I on, think, folks. you know, using Hans's artwork there is a little bit of an FU to all of the reactionary forces in Beverly Hills. He's great. He's a hate trains. He did a good job. No, no, I think it's great, but I think using his artwork on the machines that will 
tunnel the way, their way underneath Beverly Hills is kind of an F you to all of the adults <laughs> that were like, no, we hate trains. Um, and don't worry, folks, we're not done dragging Beverly Hills yet. We're going to get on to more Beverly Hills dragging oh, yeah. uh, once once we do this. So the, the Purple Line segment, just in case you don't know, is supposed to open in like 2027, right? Yeah, exactly. It's going to be opening in 2027, just in time to shuttle the 2028 Olympic athletes who are supposed to be staying in housing up near UCLA down to the area around USC where many of the events are supposed to be taking place. Uh, but not if No Olympics LA has their way. And uh, I'm sure we're going to be talking about some of their actions that have been going on in the coming uh, weeks, but we don't really have time to go over it today. Plus, let's just wait and see what some stuff that happens is going to be. So. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, we'll we'll just have to wait and see. So so now my favorite part. So we're going to do a little <laughs> bit of a reading group here uh, yeah. because the mayor of Beverly Hills uh, published an incredibly, um, I just don't know the wait, right words for this. This is the guy that, that was calling for the, the, the noisemakers to use to like expel the demonic presence of Scott Wiener, right? He, it's something like that. He <laughs> He's... So this is SB50 drama. And like, I don't want to give the impression that I like SB50 because I don't like SB50. (laughs) But what I do like about SB50 is the upzoning single family home neighborhoods. Yes. And this is something that I feel like gets lost in like the SB50 debate is, you know, it's not actually about just removing the zoning. Like if that's all that SB50 did, I would be totally on board with that. But it's the the more the giveaway for developers, but without getting too much into the weeds, on that opposition. I want to talk about this editorial that John Mirisch wrote. And John Mirisch, just so you know, is a Hollywood studio executive who has worked for some of the biggest studios out there, including Fox, uh, basically just being a rich guy. He wrote this essay uh, for the Fox and Hounds Daily, uh, basically trying to appropriate (laughs) the language. That is the single most like landed gentry name for a publication I have ever heard in my life. Yeah, and it's 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 this essay is a doozy, uh, and he he goes out of his way to appropriate the language of redlining and gentrification resistance. And keep in mind, like yay. this guy is the mayor of Beverly Hills, and when you go like Beverly Hills is. It has some dense commercial corridors. It does have some like multifamily units in it. There are some apartment buildings there, but there's a lot of really expensive single family homes. Yes. And the so, streets. look them up, people. Yeah, it's it's, and there's like, I, I kind of yelled at him on Twitter. Investment homes. Well, like I, I yelled at him on Twitter because I was like, "Why are there no bike lanes in Beverly Hills?" And I was wrong about that. There is a bike lane in Beverly Hills. <laughs> One, it runs on Santa Monica Boulevard. It connects to no other bike lanes in the city. But, the, this, this Beverly Hills City bad. Council, which apparently, here's the thing that's crazy. The Beverly Hills City Council has like 40 people on it. Wait, it's got like an whoa, insane whoa. number. Yeah, it's got an insane number of people on it. And how, like, how do they, we do that here for L.A.? Well, I mean, I don't think they get paid. I think it's it's more, uh, you know, a, a prestige thing. I don't think they're they're really like a super effective city council. But Wonderful. you know, they they have this insane amount of representation there gotcha. for for all the wealthy homeowners. But back in like 2005, they passed a bike master plan that would have connected all of Beverly Hills with internal bike lanes, and then they never built them. It after a decade, they finally built a bike lane as their pilot program, and then it got finished in 2017. And I guess they've still just been like 
like testing the pilot program to build the rest of them. But anyways, I'm going to get into this essay. <laughs> this is so, the future we uh, look forward with our bus lanes in LA. Uh, it's going to be so bad. It's <sighs> going to be so bad. So, you Continue. know, John Mirish starts off, you know, pretty easy. He says, you know, quote, the recitals, uh, sorry, the recitals seem all right. Big California cities are becoming increasingly unlivable as populations continue to concentrate, traffic gets worse, and housing costs soar. Okay, that's not actually the problem. You know, the, the problem isn't that populations are concentrating. The problem is that the populations aren't concentrating. That's why traffic's getting worse, because people have to commute a really yeah. long distance to get home and to work. Like, the 405 isn't jammed up because everyone lives real close to the office, John. The yep. 405's jammed up because people live real far away from the office because they can't get concentrated in one area. Strike one for John. Yeah. He, he uh, continues a little bit later, quote, this may simply be the after effect of the Kool-Aid hangover, but does what? anyone really think it's that simple? Does Wait. anyone really think that building more Porsches is going to bring down the price of Priuses? Has Manhattan's Wait. density helped create any meaningful housing affordability? Has oh Manji, who's the, author, who's the author of a New York Times editorial he's respond, re responding to here, has Manju even looked at vacancy levels for luxury housing or the impact of global capital on displacement and gentrification? Who the hell do you think voted for you, John? Oh who do you think's living God. in your neighborhoods? It is the people who are causing this displacement and gentrification. Yeah. More to the point, like, it's a weird analogy to say, you know, Manhattan, which is way smaller than L.A., mm -hmm. and there are parts of L.A. that are more dense than Manhattan and could probably be built up more in an affordable way is not a good counterpoint to what's going on here. Uh, also, this whole, like, does the, the price of, of a Porsche affect the price of a Prius? It's like, That's dude, just you're the one living in the Porsche neighborhood. Oh, my God. It gets better from there. No. Continue. Uh, quote, uh, yeah, quote, but this is hardly an absolute and largely a matter of personal preference. What? Yimbies who are quick to point out the racist history of single-family communities, a history which Beverly Hills, now as a Jewish majority city, has managed Wait. to overcome. Wait. Citation fucking needed. Wait. Hold on. <laughs> they also, they are also what? quick to forget the racist, oppressive history of forced density, otherwise <laughs> known as tenements and slums. Oh, Maybe my. time for them to bone up on their Jacob Rees. Wow. wow. So, like, not only are we, like, trying to play the anti-Semitism <laughs> card and people who are like, yo, Beverly Hills could use, like, some taller buildings to house some more people and maybe fewer golf courses and maybe fewer lawns. And he's like, no, no, that's anti-Semitic. Also, the tenements and <laughs> oh slums God. part, like, he's got a point that, like, urban revitalization back in the day they created the some pretty 70s, crappy conditions. not good at doing this at all. And in the 40s, too. But, but also one of the reasons they created those neighborhoods was because places like Beverly Hills went ahead and broke themselves off ding, from the ding, city ding, 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 so ding. they couldn't be forced to build the kind of apartments that people need to live in. Like the people in Beverly Hills made an affirmative choice to not be a part of our city, to become their own city so they could, in a very racist manner, lock people out. And as far as Beverly Hills overcoming the history of racism, it was about three years ago that a black guy walked into a bank on Wilshire about three blocks from the studio I was working at when he walked out the cops arrested him for robbing a bank because a guy had robbed a bank like a mile away and the cops were like the first black guy that walks out of a bank Holy must be a shit. bank robber so they arrested a 
producer and had him sit on the side of the road, oh. took him to the station, and then finally checked his ID what? and were like, oh, wait, you're not the guy that we're looking for. Because the guy that they were looking for was like almost a foot shorter than him wearing completely different clothes. But no, what? no, Beverly Hills cops were so effing racist. They were just like, black guy walking out of a bank. Uh, somebody robbed a bank today. Well, it's got to be this guy. This Good is the only black guy I've seen today. Beverly Hills. Oh, my gosh. It was so ridiculously better. Uh, then he continues, Los Angeles, San Francisco, oh, and San Jose are already the three densest urban areas in the U.S., which, what what happened to Manhattan, John? What happened to Manhattan's density disproving <laughs> L.A.'s density? Like, you're, you're just undermining your own argument. Anyways, he continues, uh, it's hard to see how more force density is going to make anything more livable, let alone create some sort of mythical affordability. Well, so those are two completely separate subjects, right? Like, a, yes, more density will make the city more livable. Not having to oh, get in a car to drive to your office or drive walk. to your work makes things way more livable. Uh, also, if you're trying to find like a grocery store in Beverly Hills, good fucking luck to that. There just really aren't any, and none of them are walkable. So <sighs> it, those are two separate issues. It's also like, you're right, John, we, we can't just build luxury. Like The argument Correct. isn't just build luxury and then it will become more affordable. It's well, build affordable housing and mandate rent control and all of that fun stuff. Yeah, uh, some folks continues, are arguing that we just need to build more luxury, and uh, they're wrong. Yeah, that's not the argument we're going for here. But he no. continues, far from being, quote, progressive, the obsession with a never-ending spiral of growth seems to be something else entirely. Economist huh? Kenneth Boulding once wrote, anyone who believes that exponential growth can go on forever in a finite world is either a madman or an economist. We might as well add Sacramento politician and a self-styled progressive opinion editor to that list. Okay, so Boulding's critique was of the growth mindset that allows corporations like Fox to continue to chase everlasting growth, that allows uh -huh. companies like Disney to continue short, chasing short-term profits forever, and that growth mindset and doesn't work. Blackstone. You know, the SB50 people aren't saying, hey, let's just build forever until we reach the stratosphere. It's, we're missing 300,000 housing units here in LA at the least. Let's at least build 300,000 housing units so we have a place to put people like there are finite numbers that we're looking to hit john this isn't just you know set nano machines loose until the gray goo you know just builds builds until we're literally out of uh resources like i'm kind yeah, of losing of that, my train of thought because i'm going mad doing, reading this but we're not even growing right now like la county is 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 growing at uh i, I think didn't we even have like a negative population growth for a bit there like yeah, LA County does, but the state of California, the state of California sees more population year over year. Yeah, LA well, County kind of like ebbs and flows, but like we're we're bringing in plenty of new people, and we're also bringing in people. like more dense people. Like we need, yeah. we have more people packed into smaller spaces. Like Westlake is the most dense place in the U.S., and there's not enough places to put people. Uh, yep. Now it gets better. He continues, no. quote, <laughs> there aren't <laughs> how much longer is he gonna go on? Oh my god, he's he, he wrote quite the essay, but I am getting towards the end here. But he's he continues, quote, there are numerous measures we should take to deal with our housing affordability challenges, none of which involve giving Wall Street product developers and marketers run of the state. Uh, they've already got it, John. I hate to break it to you. Yeah, we're, the what? newest real estate project, which would uh, which would be put in a kind of steroid-induced overdrive by SB50, the latest version of CDOs, uh, are said to be called NBOs, short for never been occupied. Okay, this is a weird one because 
as he already like laid out, we we already gave the state over to the developers. Uh, SB 50 would continue that at some point, but that also doesn't cut back on the argument that we need more houses. Uh, he continues a couple paragraphs below. Rent stabilization measures, starting with the repealing of Costa-Hawkins and the Ellis Act, would be would also be effective against displacement and gentrification. Yeah, Scott Weiner and the Yimbies, unconcerned with such solutions or protecting current residents, seem more interested in those who haven't moved here yet. Okay, first off, Scott Weiner is trying to repeal Article 34, which is like just a super racist yeah. part of... Uh, what's stopping affordable housing from being built here. So I'm giving Wiener some snaps there. But also, like, Scott Wiener backed AB 36. Like, he was backing the measure to repeal Costa-Hawkins. So I guess John Mirish here just, like, doesn't really do his research. Uh, So his last paragraph here, which he's going to finish in, like, a real strong fashion. So I want to read this. Quote, it's time to stop this silly war on single-family housing and to embrace the principle of urban humanism which allows people to form and join communities which truly reflect the diversity and the dynamism of American life at its best. We need everything from Manhattan-level densities to single-family neighborhoods and everything else in between. FYI, more than 50% of Beverly Hills residents are renters and over 60% of our housing units are multifamily. What we don't need is Sacramento or Washington or the urban planning ideologues within academia to be making decisions for us about the future of our own communities. In a cold, cruel, and sometimes heartless world, community is the solution, not the problem. Oh my God, fuck you, John. So to start off here, there is no war on single-family housing, though there really totally should be because single-family houses take up way too much land, use way too many resources, are incredibly energy inefficient, and are just value assets. You know, they're not actually used for, I mean, they are used for housing, but it's more as a way to stash generational wealth. This idea of urban humanism sounds like the exact kind of racist ideology that led to the creation of Beverly Hills in the first place. Like his whole, we want to be a community and make our own decisions. If we remove exclusionary zoning, you can still make those decisions, John. You still get to decide like what goes where and whether to approve those permits. You just don't get to stop them prima facie by saying, oh, you want to put a a quadplex there or a duplex there? Well, we don't allow you to do that. It's also really telling. You'd still be able to build a single family home on a lot if you decided that that was what you wanted to do. It wouldn't stop you from doing it at all. Exactly. It would just allow you to have other options as a community to make those decisions. It's also pretty telling that he says that, you know, 60% of our housing units are multifamily. Most of the land used in Beverly Hills is Mm -hmm. not multifamily family family uses. Like, the huge sizes of lots, the huge sizes of the houses that are there, Uh it's it's not mainly apartments that are there. And as far as saying, like, 50% of Beverly Hills residents are renters, I I mean, you're right, John. You're very right. I get the feeling that they're not the people that you're most concerned with. I get the feeling that they're not the people who you're really catering to. I also get the sense that, you know, you could have a lot more renters if you were to, like, revoke the charter of L.A. Country Club and put up a bunch of apartment buildings there. But, you know, this is sort of like, this is the racist hand in a velvet glove sort of, like, ridiculous nimbyism that we see over and over again like he's read enough critical theory that he can parrot back what's being said there and try and put it a twist on it so he's like no 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 us being racist and exclusionary isn't actually us being racist and exclusionary you're the racist and exclusionary one for not allowing us to make that decision this is just an absolute ridiculous 
wrong-headed and bald-faced cynical attempt to justify having a wealthy enclave in the middle of an incredibly dense and dynamic city. And when you look at Beverly Hills, it's just sort of this like big doorstop in the middle of LA. Like when you're driving through uh, or when you're taking the 720, guess where those, those rapid transit lanes disappear? in Beverly Hills, like suddenly the rapid bus lane that's taking you down the 720 faster than all the traffic, you get to Beverly Hills and doink, you're back back right in the midst of all the traffic. And Beverly Hills kind of like is the problem. So I guess what my final note here would be is seize Beverly Hills. (laughs) And I don't think we have too many Beverly Hills listeners, but hey, if we do, (laughs) let us know, folks. Um, I would love to hear from you. But I, I think we honestly should just, you know, reintegrate Beverly Hills into LA and like force them to not be this weird enclave in the middle of our city that just stops progress because combine this with their opposition to the purple line it's like every good idea goes to beverly hills and dies and not because of any good dynamic forces in the market or any sensible way but because rich people like john mirish are standing in the way of progress for their own benefit and uh yeah so that concludes uh, our first, uh, you know, reading segment here, where I just <laughs> yell at an essay. Uh, maybe John Mears wants to like go ahead and publish some more stuff for me to yell about because I, I'm up for this again, John. I will, I will take you to task on your misuse of critical theory every single day of the effing week. Sounds I will be more than like, happy to do that. Yeah, that'll be fun. Oh. Um, but before yeah, we, but so that's what the we, like incorporate Beverly Hills. Can we like also incorporate? Uh, I don't know, Malibu and City of Vernon, City of Industry. I mean, City of Vernon, yes. City of Industry, (laughs) yes. I mean, not that a lot of people live in those. Like the City of Vernon has like 70 people who live there and then like a rendering plant that you can smell from a mile away. And like 130 of them vote. But anyway... Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot of like LA, LA County could do itself a huge favor by like incorporating some of these smaller cities into a greater like superstructure, especially when you have like the folks out in Carson starting fist fights with each other, like these little broken cities that uh, existed for too long. Oh, it's the city of commerce, yeah. not Carson. I apologize, Carson. <laughs> but yeah, we have these tiny little cities that were were basically invented in order to give moneyed interest and industry interests their own block of the city to control, you know, like a Stop bid it. on steroids. Yeah. And we oh, should oh, dismantle boy. those cities. Like True Detective season two was a terrible season of television, but it was a great takedown of the city of Bell, of the city of Vernon, of the city of commerce, of all Gateway of these little weird city. outposts Oops. that we have. Yeah, so uh, let's go ahead and and move towards the end here. Mm -hmm. Uh, I did want to put a couple things on your all's radar. Uh, So Occupy Ice LA's first anniversary is coming up this week, uh, which I know Uh, I've mentioned before. I did an audio essay on it. Uh, We started that encampment. It ran for 88 days. It was uh, an entire thing. Um, uh, Trying to run an occupation and encampment is my favorite and least favorite thing I've ever tried to do. Uh, but a year later, things have not gotten better. Uh, so we do have some ice raids that are supposedly coming up this weekend. Yep. Uh, Sunday, the uh, Trump administration will be sending out ICE agents, a.k.a. their Gestapo, to knock on the doors of 2,000 families in 10 major metropolitan cities across this Man, country. We in the, the city of L.A., 
Yeah, in the city of LA, there are 140 families that are targeted. Now, these are families that have standing deportation orders because they've been their recent arrivals who applied for asylum. The Department of Justice decided to expedite the hearings on those, uh, decided to deny them their ability to claim asylum in this country, and now will be sending armed men to their houses to collect them, to deport them uh, with haste. So, from uh, noon on Saturday, which is the 22nd to 10 p.m. on Sunday, the 23rd. There's going to be a vigil, speeches, rallies, whole bunch of good organizing going on down at Aliso and Alameda in downtown LA, which is very close to Union Station if you want to take the train. Uh, it will be in front of the Metropolitan Detention Center. You will, if you've never been there, go see it. We have a we have two massive prisons right in downtown LA, and if you don't know they're there, they're very easy to miss. But the Metropolitan Detention Center, you can actually communicate with the folks who are held inside there. Absolutely. They can see you out on the street. They will yeah. flash lights. They will bang on the window. You will be able to communicate back with them often they will be flashing you numbers in Morse code because they don't have any way to communicate with their families so they're given numbers by the federal government that their families can call to try and get in contact with them and to get updates on them this isn't widely or easily shared with the families sometimes families are afraid of trying to get this information because they're also undocumented and they don't want to get picked up I remember waking up many mornings at the Occupy ICE encampment and a guy would wander over from uh, either Twin Towers or come out of the Metropolitan Detention Center and be like, yo, I'm from Westchester and I have no way to get home. And we would get that man a lift. We would give him some food. We would find a way to get them back to their families. It was heartbreaking. It was incredibly hard work. It was incredibly taxing. Um, and it's going to keep continuing. Like this stuff isn't going to get better. We have literal concentration camps and two of these massive concentration camps exist in downtown LA. Don't let anyone ever convince you that our prisons are not a concentration camp because they are. And they're a very racialized and classist concentration camp. We don't want to think about them that way. We want to think that the criminal legal system somehow serves justice, somehow serves a working function in our society. It yeah. does not. And we have to start dismantling this. One way to do that is to go and put yourself through the uncomfortable position of standing in front of a prison, understanding the level of privilege that you have compared to the people in there, meeting mm -hmm. people in your city who care about this and want to fix this and want to do something about this. So you'll have chances to do this. I have a feeling that we're going to be seeing more of these protests crop cropping up across the nation and in Los Angeles. We will keep you tuned in as that goes on. Uh, there's go also going to be a Housing Not Hotels first canvas by No Olympics LA, which will be going yep. down in Hollywood. I will put the description for that down, or I'll put the uh, details for that down in the description so you can do that also if you want but honestly get out there get active do something because at this point you lose nothing by doing something we lose everything if we do nothing exactly and as always if you guys have any events that you want us to publicize take part in or generally be made aware of please visit our website at www.groundgamela.org or visit our facebook page and send us a message there or just send an email over to podcast at groundgamela.org. Thank you very much yep. for listening. Uh, it's, been, it's been a hell of a week, and it just keeps on rolling forward. Thanks, Bushido. Thank you. Have a good week. Take it easy, guys.
Abbott. Freddy Abbott. Freddy Abbott. Thirty and more. Thirty and more. Thirty and more. Thirty and more. 